Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 14th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarrett and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. More employers have jumped on the bandwagon and filed suit against Applied Underwriters, a Berkshire Hathaway company, over the workers' compensation policies they purchased. David Miller is one of them. He is a stickler for safety at the Goodwill stores he runs in Central California. So when Applied, when applied Underwriters offered his nonprofit a deal on insurance for workplace accidents, if he could minimize injuries, he jumped at the opportunity. But these days, he wishes he had not done so. The contracts Miller signed have turned into a burden for his organization. It paid $1.8 million to cover about 350 employees at 17 locations from Lodi to Visalia. But when the nonprofit switched carriers last year, Applied demanded hundreds of thousands of dollars more to fund remaining claims. Miller's nonprofit is one of a dozen of employers, from a bike courier service in Manhattan to a linen supply company in Sacramento that have sued Applied for deceptive practices. The businesses allege the insurer peddled products regulators had not approved. They complain about being surprised by large bills based on formulas that stacked the deck in the insurer's favor. So far, California, Vermont, and Wisconsin have banned some of these applied plans. The insurer says that its products save employers money and that customers were aware of the terms. Applied lawyers said companies that are litigating account for only about one in 400 policies that have been sold. He said their plans did not work out in their favor because they had claims that caused costs to go up. And he claims they are now taking advantage of a regulatory situation to avoid paying what they owe. The Berkshire Hathaway subsidiary agreed to orders by regulators in California, Vermont, and Wisconsin to halt some of its sales. But the company continues to press its case in California, its largest market, where it has asked a state court judge to overturn the insurance commissioner's decision that its plans were illegal. Its attorney added that it's an innovative product, and sometimes when you have an innovative product, regulators take a while to catch up to it, and that's exactly what he thinks is happening here. As courts weigh these quarrels, this is much as clear. It's a lot of hot water for one of Warren Buffett's big companies. The billionaire tells Berkshire managers that there's plenty of money to be made in the center of the court. In other words, there's no need to clo get close to the line legally or ethically to make some extra bucks. But state regulators' filings show how lucrative Applied's workers' comp plans were. Net income at California Insurance. One of the company's largest subsidiaries rose to $65.5 million in 2014 from a loss of $4.4 million five years earlier. Margins were very fat also. The same subsidiary made more than 35 cents on each dollar in premium revenue it collected every year from 2010 to 2014. While workers' compensation insurers in California posted in aggregate an underwriting loss, according to state insurance regulators. 
The United States Supreme Court has refused to review a Florida case challenging the state's entire workers' compensation system. The decision was in response to the case of Daniel Stahl versus Hialeah Hospital, which made its way through the state courts until April when the Florida Supreme Court ruled it did not have jurisdiction in the case. The petitioners sought the U.S. Supreme Court review last August. The Stahl case questioned whether Florida's workers' comp system is an adequate alternative for injured workers since its major overhaul in 2003. More specifically, the case challenged whether the elimination of a type of partial disability benefits by lawmakers is legal. The case stems from a back injury Stahl suffered while working as a nurse for Hialeah Hospital in 2003. Stahl's physician found that he had reached MMI and his injury was career-ending because he could not return to work as a nurse but he was only entitled to 12 weeks of benefits and compensated $5,472 for his career-ending injury. Stahl did not meet the definition of permanent total disability, and his claim for permanent total disability benefits was denied. Stahl claimed that the benefits available since Florida's workers' comp reforms went into effect are inadequate and therefore cannot be the exclusive remedy for on-the-job injuries, and that the Florida workers' comp law violates the U.S. Constitution. Essentially, Stahl was an indictment of the entire workers' compensation law in Florida. And the First District Court of Appeal, the Florida Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court have now rejected that indictment. There have been similar constitutional challenges to reform efforts in various jurisdictions, including California. None of them have in input from the U.S. Supreme Court. The failure of the Florida claimant in this instance may be seen by the employer community as a favorable outcome with repercussions nationwide. The WCAB refused to order sanctions against a carrier after an applicant claimed they did not properly send relevant medical records to the UR reviewer. Here's what happened in the panel decision of McKinney versus Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Kathleen McKinney injured her neck and other body parts in 2014 while working as a driver for Enterprise Rent-A-Car. She filed four separate petitions for penalties and sanctions under Labor Code Sections 5813 and 5814. Her theory was that when the RFAs were submitted, the defendant had in its possession and control medical reports and records germane to each of the four RFAs and <clears throat> failed to provide them to WellComp, its UR organization, for consideration causing the RFAs to be denied. The defendant filed an answer to each of the four petitions asserting that the request for authorization was timely denied by utilization review and thus there was no jurisdiction for the WCAB to decide anything. In each instance, the documentation reviewed by UR was limited to the actual RFA and the treating physician's contemporaneous progress reports. There is no indication that the January 2015 MRI results were provided to the evaluating doctor, which documented chronic discogenic end plate changes at several levels and central and neural foraminal narrowing at several levels, as well as disc protrusion at C4-C5. 
The reason given for the non-certification was that the request does not adequately document myofascial pain syndrome. However, three PTP progress reports in June and July 2015 state that applicant does indeed have myofascial pain syndrome. The work comp judge found that the defendant acted with bad faith in its handling of the four separate requests for authorization, making it liable for sanctions. But the WCAB disagreed and reversed the sanctions in the panel decision. The significant issues in this case is jurisdiction of the WCAB to award penalties and sanctions, despite the fact that UR was timely. The defendant argued that any dispute over the medical necessity of a particular treatment modality is exclusively within the purview of independent medical review. But the WCAB disagreed and ruled that Labor Code Section 5813 specifically authorizes the appeals board or a work comp judge to order sanctions as a result of bad faith actions or tactics that are frivolous or solely intended to cause unnecessary delay. Similarly, Section 5814 authorizes an increase in the delayed compensation payment up to prescribed monetary amounts. So they ruled there was indeed jurisdiction to decide the four petitions. But the panel said that rules require the request for authorization itself to include documentation substantiating the need for the requested treatment. The primary treating physician and not a claims adjuster is the one who knows what medical records substantiate the requested treatment. Presumably, the records and reports the PTP included with each RFA were those records, in her expert opinion, that supported the recommended treatment. Therefore, the WCAB could not say that under these circumstances, the defendant's failure to take the initiative and submit applicant's complete medical record to the UR doctor was a willful failure to comply with its regulatory and statutory obligations or an indication of bad faith tactic that is frivolous or solely intended to cause delay. And another constitutional attack to the use of the AMA guides is pending in the Pennsylvania High Court. The Pennsylvania Workers' Compensation Act requires the use of the most recent edition of the American Medical Association guidelines for evaluating a claimant's impairment ratings. And several justices questioned the legislature's decision to give a private group such as this one wide latitude to shape state law during oral argument. In the case that may inspire constitutional attacks in other jurisdictions, Protz versus WCAB centers on the issue of whether the Pennsylvania Act delegates the legislature's lawmaking authority to the American Medical Association by allowing it to set the criteria for workers' compensation benefits. In a deeply divided prior unbank ruling in Protz, the Commonwealth Court found that their requirement to use the most recent edition left unchecked discretion completely in the hands of a private entity. But the Commonwealth Court did, did remand the case to apply the fourth edition of the AMA guides. During oral argument before the state Supreme Court in Pittsburgh, counsel for both sides were peppered with questions from the justices about whether the legislature imbued the AME, AMA with too much unchecked power. The decision of the top court will soon be rendered.
And now our crime report. Medical device manufacturer Biocompatibles Incorporated pleaded guilty to misbranding its embolic device LC Bead. And it will pay more than $36 million to resolve criminal and civil liability arising out of its illegal conduct. The product, LC Bead, is used to treat liver cancer, among other diseases. Biocompatibles pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge in connection with the company's misbranding of the product in violation of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. The product was cleared by the FDA as an embolization device that can be placed in blood vessels to block or reduce blood flow to certain types of tumors and arteriovenous malformations. Their product has never been cleared or approved by the FDA as a drug device combination product for use as a drug delivery device or drug eluding bead. The company will pay an $8.75 million criminal fine for the misbranding and a criminal forfeiture of $2.25 million. In addition, Biocompatibles will pay $25 million to resolve civil allegations under the False Claims Act that the company caused false claims to be submitted to government health care programs for procedures in which the product was loaded with chemotherapy drugs and used as a drug delivery device. The federal share of the civil settlement is approximately $23.6 million, and the state Medicaid share of the civil settlement is about $1.4 million. Two years after the FDA approval, Biocompatibles began marketing the product for drug delivery despite assurances during the approval process that it would not do so. The company told its sales representatives that the product was indeed a drug delivery device and trained its sales representatives to aggressively penetrate the chemo immobilization market. The civil settlement with Biocompatibles resolves a lawsuit filed under the whistleblower provisions of the False Claim Act, which permits private parties to file suit on behalf of the United States for false claims and share in a portion of the government's recovery. As part of this resolution, the whistleblower here will receive about $5.1 million from the civil settlement. U.S. prosecutors are bearing down on generic pharmaceutical companies in a sweeping criminal investigation into suspected price collusion. The antitrust investigation by the Justice Department began about two years ago and now spans more than a dozen companies and about two dozen drugs. The grand jury probe is examining whether some executives agreed with one another to raise prices and the first charges could emerge by the end of the year. Among the drug makers to have received subpoenas are industry giants Mylan NV and Teva Pharmaceutical Industries. Other companies include Activists, which Teva bought from Allergen in August, Lynette Company, Impax Laboratories, Covis Pharma Holdings, Sarl, Sun Pharmaceuticals Industries, Maine Pharma Group, Endo International, PLC's subsidiary, Par Pharmaceutical Holdings, and Taro Pharmaceutical Industries. Drug pricing has met harsh criticism from U.S. lawmakers in the past year. Former hedge fund manager Martin Scarelli set off the firestorm after he acquired an old antiparasitic drug 
and raised the price from $13.50 to $750 a pill. Valiant Pharmaceuticals International was lamblasted by Congress for boosting prices of its older drugs. And in September, representatives grilled Mylan Chief Executive Officer Heather Bresch over the company's six-fold price increase since 2007 to $600 for a pair of EpiPen allergy shots. While attention so far has been focused mainly on branded drugs, which are more expensive, the Justice Department probe is now bringing the generics industry into the fray. Although it is not illegal for companies to raise prices at the same time, it is against the law for competitors to agree to set prices or coordinate on discounts, production quotas, or fees that affect prices. The federal government can prosecute companies for collusion and seek penalties and potentially send executives to jail. Charges could even extend to high-level executives. The Antitrust Division, which has an immunity program to motivate wrongdoers to confess and inform on others, has stepped up its commitment to holding individuals responsible. According to a recent report from the Office of Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services, the Personal Care Services Program, which exceeded $14.5 billion in fiscal year 2014, is rife with financial scams. Demand for personal care assistance is projected to grow by 26% over the next 10 years, an increase of roughly half a million workers. And a program manager at Alaska's Department of Health and Social Services, who has investigated widespread fraud claims, says this type of industry is ripe for fraud. The risk increase because of the care takes place out of view in people's homes and because neglected patients may not advocate for their own care. The Office of the Inspector General report describes a range of ripoffs, some of which involve caretakers caught up in the nation's opioid epidemic. In one Illinois case, a woman whose nursing license had been suspended for allegedly stealing drugs at work signed up as a caretaker. She billed Medicaid for $34,000 in caretaking services she did not provide, including charges made while she was on a Caribbean vacation. In Vermont, a caretaker on probation for drug possession split her paychecks with the patient's wife in exchange for stealing the patient's prescription painkillers while he lay in visible discomfort. In other cases, Medicaid beneficiaries colluded in hoaxes, faking disability, so they could hire unneeded help. In some cases, elderly patients were neglected by their own children who signed up for caretaker payments. In Idaho, a woman was hospitalized for severe dehydration and malnourishment after her son and caretaker, Paul Drain, neglected her. Investigators found the home they shared littered with drug paraphernalia. Investigators provided no count of how many cases of fraud and abuse involved relatives, but it's fairly common for family members to be the attendants. And an OIG special agent based in Washington, D.C. said it's fairly common for those same family members to be the ones who are abusing, neglecting, or committing fraud. 
In California, three-quarters of Medicaid-funded personal assistants are relatives, though some states restrict hiring family members. A Kaiser Health news investigation in California last year revealed widespread problems as well as a lack of training and oversight in the state's program, which is the largest in the U.S. The Kaiser Health News investigation found that caregivers are largely untrained and unsupervised, even when paid by the state, leaving thousands of of residents at risk of possible abuse, neglect, and poor treatment. The move from nursing home to in-home care is part of a massive shift across the nation driven by cost-cutting and patient preference. In California, at least four times more elderly and disabled residents receive in-home care than live in nursing facilities, a rate that is only expected to increase. And in regulatory news, California employers have been dealing with the ramifications of legal medical marijuana for years. And now that voters have passed Proposition 64 legalizing recreational marijuana use, the CWCI expects that employers face a new reality of potentially outdated workplace policies, employee accommodation, and the applicability of drug-free workplace guidelines. Workers' compensation carriers and self-insured employers in particular must begin to consider the impact of Proposition 64 that may have on claims processing. According to the CWCI report, last August, the National Conference of State Legislators adopted a resolution asking the federal government to remove marijuana from Schedule I restrictions. But the following day, the Drug Enforcement Agency announced that it would not remove marijuana from its Schedule I classification, reaffirming its determination that the drug's therapeutic value has not been scientifically proven. As a Schedule I drug under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, marijuana may not be prescribed, administered, or dispensed, and it is illegal to possess, use, purchase, sell, or cultivate it. Thus, even in states where medical marijuana is legal, doctors can only write a recommendation for the remedy. But the federal government has decided it has higher priorities than enforcement of its anti-marijuana stance. The U.S. Department of Justice has actually formalized a hands-off policy, leaving enforcement of minor drug activity up to the states. States can decide to legalize, tax, and regulate marijuana. Out of 25 states that allow medical marijuana, only five explicitly exempt workers' compensation payers from liability for medical marijuana. And at least one state has no legislation or judicial case law either requiring or prohibiting workers' comp payers from reimbursing an injured worker for medical marijuana. The remainder of the states that allow medical marijuana, including California, rely on analogous statutory language that precludes a private health insurer from being forced to pay for marijuana. In California, the Health and Safety Code specifically provides that nothing in the state's medical marijuana program shall require any health insurance provider to be liable for reimbursement for the medical use of marijuana. But there may be a developing trend toward compelling compensation if other states follow the lead of New Mexico. 
The New Mexico Supreme Court has required reimbursement for medical marijuana pursuant to the state's workers' compensation statute since 2014. In addition to New Mexico, workers' compensation payers have been required to reimburse payments for medical cannabis in Minnesota, Maine, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. Cal OSHA has cited AAA roofing by Gene Incorporated for serious safety violations following an asphalt tanker's explosion in Santa Fe Springs. The explosion burned two workers and launched them 10 feet onto the ground. Both workers suffered third-degree burns. AAA Roofing has been hired to repair the flat roof of a warehouse when the accident occurred. Two employees standing on top of a tanker truck were attempting to turn the truck's discharge pipe to face a different direction. Cal OSHA inspectors learned that their workers' foreman instructed them to heat the pipe with a propane torch to loosen it. The tanker was half-filled with hot liquid asphalt, which releases flammable vapors. And flammable vapors accumulate in kettles and tankers, if ignited, can burn or explode. Employers must ensure that no source of ignition is permitted in any location, indoors or outdoors, where the concentration of flammable gases or vapors exceeds or may reasonably be expected to exceed 25% of the lower explosive limit. Cal OSHA issued three workplace safety citations to AAA roofing by Gene with proposed penalties of over $24,000. Two of the citations are serious and one is regulatory in nature. One of the serious citations involved AAA's failure to ensure the tanker truck was equipped with a 42-inch guardrail. This could have helped ensure the workers did not fall 10 feet as they did. The other serious citation was for allowing a source of ignition to be introduced where the flammable gases exceeded 25% of the lower explosive limit. A serious violation is cited when there is a realistic possibility that death or serious harm could result from the actual hazardous condition. And in medical news... Research presented at the Anesthesiology 2016 annual meeting claimed that millions of people take opiates for chronic back pain, but many of them get only limited relief while experiencing side effects and worrying about the stigma associated with taking them. The American Society of Anesthesiologists is an educational research and scientific society with more than 52,000 members. The presentation noted that more than 100 million people in the United States suffer from chronic pain. And those with chronic low back pain are more likely than patients with other types of pain to be prescribed opioids. Unfortunately, these medications are addictive and can cause serious side effects. Although patients are increasingly aware that opioids are problematic, many do not know that there are alternative treatment options. While some patients may benefit from opiates for severe pain for a few days after an injury, physicians need to wean their patients off of them and use multimodal therapies instead. In the study, more than 2,000 people with low back pain completed a survey about treatment. Nearly half were currently taking opioids, 
When asked how successful the opioids were in relieving their pain, only 13% said very successful. The most common answer given by 44% was somewhat successful and 31% said moderately successful. 12% said not successful at all. 75% said they experienced undesirable side effects. Respondents also had concerns about the stigma associated with taking opioids. 41% of the respondents said they felt judged by using opioids, while 68% of the patients had also been treated with antidepressants, with only 19% of them felt a stigma from using those. Researchers also note a lack of solid studies on the effectiveness of opioids in treating back pain beyond 12 weeks. Patients with chronic low back pain, persistent pain lasting more than three months, should see a pain medicine specialist who uses an approach that combines a variety of treatments that may be more beneficial. These treatments include physical therapy, bracing, interventional procedures such as nerve blocks, nerve ablation techniques, or implantable devices. And other medications such as anti-inflammatories and alternative therapies such as biofeedback and massage are recommended. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.